So we remember the broad strokes of this chapter. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he says that that's a sign. That signifies how he himself, the bread of life, will give life to their souls in a way that the physical bread that he had given them would give life to their bodies. And that they need to believe in him, as we read in John chapter 6 and verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. That they need to believe in him, and that's how they eat the bread of life. So Jesus teaches it plainly and non-metaphorically, you need to believe in me and I will give you life. Then he teaches it the same thing metaphorically, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. But both sections of John chapter 6 are pointing to the same reality, which is that Jesus gives himself for the life of the world. And the way that we receive life from Jesus is to believe in him, or what he says, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which is basically taking him, not just outwardly, but inwardly. And we'll talk a little bit more about that this morning. But basically, that's what Jesus had taught in John chapter 6. When he was finished that teaching, many of the people whom he was teaching left. We read in John chapter 6, verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why? Because, as they had said earlier in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's not that they didn't understand, it's that they did not accept it. Jesus, who they could follow around and hear some interesting teaching and get loaves of bread from time to time, miraculously provided, okay, they could deal with that Jesus. But the Jesus who has come to save their souls which implies in the first place that their souls need saving, which is a hard message for people to accept. And for Jesus to say, I am the bread of life, essentially, if you don't deal with me, you don't have life. In other words, as he said elsewhere in the Gospel of John, which we'll get to in due time, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a bread of life. I am one of the loaves on the shelf. Right? Please choose me. I am reasonably priced. I am baked with the finest ingredients. One among many clamoring for your attention and clamoring that you would choose me from among the options. No, that's not what Jesus said. I am the bread of life. Jesus makes a claim to be the exclusive Savior. And in calling himself a Savior, he's also implying that people need saving And these sorts of things tend to be hard things for people to accept. And so after this, many turned back and no longer walked with him. We looked last week at Peter's answer to Jesus' question, you don't want to go away also, do you? We looked at Peter's answer, where else would we go? To who else would we go? This is not an expression of unbridled enthusiasm. This is just... A recognition that, yeah, this is, this is a hard moment in which to follow Jesus. A lot of people are leaving and it would be easier to go with them. Sometimes we feel like that too, but at the end of the day, where else are we going to go? To whom are we going to go? When we've come to believe, 
and to know that He is the Holy One of God and that He does have the words of eternal life, that His message is true. Even when it's hard and it would be easier to reject the message, how can we reject the message of eternal life? And we read immediately after Peter's answer in verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. Why did Jesus answer them like this? Why did, after Peter said, to whom are we going to go? To whom shall we go? Why did Jesus answer them like this? Didn't I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Many commentators take Peter's words actually as an expression of unbridled enthusiasm. As if Peter is just so fired up at this juncture. And it's like, we, it hasn't even crossed our minds, Lord, to leave. Where else would we go? They take it like that and they take Jesus' answer then as a rebuke to his enthusiasm or to his um, confidence in himself and in his commitment to the Savior. However, if that is the sense of what Peter said, and if that's the sense of Jesus' answer, then Jesus is actually essentially telling him to tone it down. But where else in the Scripture do we read that we should tone down our commitment to Jesus? And secondly, Jesus would be undermining Peter's assurance. And where else do we read in the Scripture that God doesn't want us to know whether we belong to Him or not. Jesus would essentially be saying, not so fast. First of all, cool it a little bit. Second of all, how do you know that you are actually not going to desert me? He would be introducing doubt into Peter's mind. And this would run against the general tenor of Scripture, including 1 John 5.13, in which the Apostle tells us, that he is writing the things that he is in his letter to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God isn't trying to keep us in suspense so that we will continue to do our best and follow Him. Some people think that assurance of faith is really, assurance of salvation is really only going to weaken our Christian commitment Because if you knew, maybe you'd stop trying. But if you don't know, well, then you're going to keep trying as hard as you can. But that would kind of assume sort of a works-based mentality anyway. Because then you would be trying hard enough to just pass muster. You'd be trying hard enough just to meet the bar, which isn't really how salvation works anyway, right? Because it's all grace. Secondly, if you go to work and you're not sure whether you're going to be paid for the work day... Or if you are sure that you are going to be paid for the work day, in which case will you work harder? Certainly it's when you know that it's worthwhile and you're going to get paid. And so that whole line of thinking doesn't make any sense. So this is why I said to you last week, I don't understand Peter's words that way as being just unbridled enthusiasm. And I don't understand Jesus' answer then as being uh, undermining Peter's uh, enthusiasm and undermining Peter's assurance. But if we do not understand Peter's answer, 
like that, and if we don't understand Jesus' answer to Peter like that, then obviously the supposed connection that Jesus is basically saying to Peter, hang on, not so fast, maybe you don't believe as thoroughly as you think you do, and maybe you would desert me under certain circumstances. If Jesus is not doing that, then what is the connection between Peter's reply and Jesus' answer here in this passage? Because we do read, Jesus answered them. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? So what is the connection here? First of all, we should read that Jesus answered them. Them. Not Jesus answered Peter, but Jesus answered them. So, Peter spoke for the group. Lord, to whom shall we go? Not Lord, to whom shall I go? Peter spoke for the group, and Jesus answered them. You see, here's the issue. Peter was not overconfident in himself at this juncture. But Peter was overconfident in the uniformity of the twelve. In other words... Peter was overconfident that all 12 of them felt the same way that he did. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Wait, only 11 of them felt like that. Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus isn't cautioning... Peter against Peter thinking that Peter is a Christian based on the fact that ultimately at the end of the day, where else is he going to go? Ultimately, Peter's allegiance is to Christ. Peter, Jesus isn't cautioning Peter to question whether Peter is truly a Christian because Peter ultimately has allegiance to Christ. Jesus is cautioning Peter against the assumption that everyone who was still physically with Jesus after this desertion, where many turned back to walk with him, uh, to no longer walk with him, rather. Jesus was cautioning Peter against the assumption that everyone who remained physically present with Jesus was also spiritually with Jesus. Though Judas was a visible disciple of Christ, he was not a genuine disciple of Christ. Judas was chosen not to salvation, but to apostleship. Look in verse 70. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. This is not proof, as some would make it, that God does not elect individuals unto salvation. Because after all, here's Judas chosen unto salvation, and yet we know that he was a devil and he betrayed Jesus. So obviously, God does not elect certain individuals unto salvation. So the logic goes. But let's just back up a little bit to see what it says earlier In John chapter 6. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So there are people given to Jesus, the Son, by the Father. 
and everyone the Father gives to the Son will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there's no one who comes to Jesus in faith, but Jesus says, no, I won't have you. Okay? Now, look a little bit down at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So all that the Father gives to the Son will come, and none of them will be lost. Jesus will lose nothing of all that the Father has given him, but raise it up on the last day. And so what we see is that there is a choosing by God of people who are given to the Son, and Jesus saves every last one of them. We read other places as well about this election. This is not the main point of the sermon this morning, so I'm going to move on from it. But I just want to highlight for you that even John 6 precludes the idea that Judas was among those given by the Father to the Son who would come to Jesus in faith um, because if he was among that number, then Jesus would raise him up on the last day. And so what we see is that this must be another kind of choosing. And when we realize in the Bible that there is lots of other kind of choosing, God chose Israel as a nation from among other nations. God chose individuals, like for example, even Saul, the first king of Israel, to be in a particular place at a particular time. Uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, is called my anointed one. Even though, as far as we can tell, he was a pagan king. There is... Uh, many instances in scripture where God chooses someone for a particular task and that seems to be what's in view here where Jesus has chosen these disciples to be visible disciples visible followers um, apostles even but not unto salvation which raises the question why would Jesus choose somebody like Judas not elected to salvation to be among his disciples. I'm going to quote at length from Rick Phillips' commentary on John, where he's also actually summarizing and synthesizing six points that A.W. Pink makes about why Jesus chose Judas to be one of his close companions, each of which tells us something important about our Lord and his gospel. First, by choosing Judas as one of the twelve, Jesus displayed his perfect obedience to the will of the Father. Hebrews 10.7 tells us that Jesus came into the world to fulfill the words of Psalm 40 and verse 7. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And one of the prophecies recorded in God's book required that Jesus be betrayed by a close friend. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 41 and verse 9. Jesus included such a person in his band of companions so as to fulfill God's word. Second, the choice of Judas provided an impartial witness to the moral excellency of Christ. We might expect Jesus' close friends to praise his holiness, but the witness of his betrayer is all the more significant. Before killing himself, Judas declared Jesus to be sinless. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
Matthew 27 and verse 4. Third, the choice of Judas gave occasion to uncover the awfulness of sin. Judas enjoyed the close friendship of Jesus and witnessed his entire saving ministry, yet still betrayed him. This shows us the level of sin which we are capable unless we gain eternal life in Christ. Fourth, this supplies sinners with a solemn warning. Pink writes, the example of Judas shows us how near a man may come to Christ and yet be lost. Those who put on religious airs or frequent the church but do not yield their hearts to Jesus are in gravest peril. The example of Judas proves that a man may witness the most stupendous marvels, may hear the most spiritual teaching, may company with the most godly characters and yet never himself be born again. Fifth, we may expect to find hypocrites among the followers of Christ. Judas was not an honest unbeliever. He deceived people by pretending to follow Jesus. He even preached the gospel while not believing it himself. Matthew 10.4 He played the act so well that none of his peers doubted that he was a disciple. But Jesus knew all along just as He knows the heart, the truth of every heart today. Judas's hypocrisy ended with his betrayal of Jesus, damning his own soul. There are Judases among us today, many of them occupying pulpits in the church. And we must not be dismayed when they are discovered. More on those points in a moment, which is the main thrust of today's message, but sixth, Jesus' choice of Judas to be one of the twelve affords one more illustration of how radically different are God's thoughts and ways from our own. This is not how we would orchestrate the coming of the world's Savior. Likewise, God has ordained many things that seem unwise to our way of thinking. But the wisdom of God's choice of Judas was unfolded at the cross where our sins were put away by Christ's blood. End quote. So Judas was not chosen to salvation. That's not the sense of it here, but chosen to apostleship. And nevertheless, he is, as it says here, a devil. In fact, I read in more than one commentary this week that the Greek puts it a little more strongly, it should probably read the devil. One of you is the devil. As in the situation where Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. One of them was so wicked that as Peter wasn't literally Satan, but in that instance, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. So it is here that one was so wicked that Jesus could metaphorically refer to him as the devil. The big idea of our sermon this morning, understanding how this fits now in the context of John 6 and its relation to what goes before and so on and so forth. From here on out, the big idea of today's sermon is this. In Matthew Henry's words, many that are seeming saints are real devils. Many that are seeming saints are real 
devils. Profession of faith in Christ Jesus does not equal possession of faith in Christ Jesus. People may be liars, of course. And it it goes without saying that if you know you are not a Christian, you know you don't love Jesus, you know you are not trusting in Jesus, you know full well you're putting on a show, you know full well you're just trying to keep up appearances, you know that you're lying. It goes without saying, you are not a Christian. That should be pretty obvious, I think. If you know you don't really love and trust Jesus, but you're acting like it, you are not a Christian. That should be non-controversial and self-evident to anyone here in this room. If that's you, that was me at a time. When I was a teenager, I just didn't want to deal with the difficulty of not being, not keeping up the profession outwardly. And I had to come to a point where I said, you know what, let me just stop being a hypocrite and just own the truth. I'm not a Christian. It may be you. Hear this. You are not a Christian. And you are under God's wrath. And you will perish in your sins. Pretending to be a Christian literally gets you nowhere. But in addition to liars, people may simply just be mistaken. Or mixed up. Profession of faith does not equal possession of faith. Let me, let me draw an analogy here. We are living in a time where a lot of things are changing. Including people's ideas about how many genders there are. Including people's ideas about what constitutes a person a male and what constitutes a person a female. A man or a woman. And so you have men undergoing... very radical surgeries and then say I'm a woman so they profess to be a woman are they actually a woman no if you profess to be a woman but you are actually a man you're still a man if you are a woman but you profess to be a man You're still a woman. So professing something, that's just an example. Professing something doesn't actually change the reality. You profess womanness, if you will, but you possess manness, or vice versa. What you profess does not actually change what you possess. Same as if I told you, yeah, I'm six foot one. What? Wait, no, no, no. Wait, why are you laughing? I am six foot one. You see that you, you profess to, to possess something. Namely, in that case, height. But you do not thereby possess it. Simply professing something does not put you in possession of that which you profess to have. Right? Or you would see this. You see this all the time in um, situations where someone is trying to impress another. 
right? And they're talking about how much money they got, you know, and, and all the all the possessions that they have. And then all of a sudden you find out, you know, it's a hired car, right? And you, you borrowed your friend's watch and, and you realize this person professes but does not possess. Obviously we realize, these are just a number of different examples, but obviously we realize there is a true principle that professing to possess something is not the same thing as actually possessing something, obviously. But when it comes to Christianity, everyone seems to throw that principle out the window, well, I'm a Christian, and who are you to tell me otherwise? Well, hang on a second. You profess to possess something, and all I'm doing is just seeing whether, in fact, you actually possess it. What's so unreasonable about that? If you, if you were trying to, as a single person, meet someone in online dating, and they tell you they're six foot one, and they tell you they got a big house, and a nice car, and a nice watch, and so on and so forth, you would expect that upon due process of investigation, those facts would bear out. And, and nobody, nobody would find it unreasonable if a young lady, smitten with the six foot one man with a nice watch and a nice car and a nice house that she met online, meets him, finds out he's none of those things, drops him like a bad habit, nobody, nobody would fault her. Nobody would say, you're a bigot. <laughs> Nobody would say, you're judgmental. But we come to do the same thing with Christianity, and all of a sudden, you're a bigot. You're judgmental. How dare you say that I do not possess what I profess to possess? How dare you? Some people are mistaken. They have no share in Christ Jesus. They do not manifest saving faith in Christ Jesus the way that the Bible defines it. They do not possess the new nature that comes from having God work upon a soul, taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh. They have not experienced the new birth that John chapter 3 talks about, but they possess, pardon me, they profess to be Christians. But you examine... And you find out you're mistaken. You do not have a new nature. And the sort of faith that you do have is not actually the biblical definition of saving faith in Christ Jesus. Some people are mistaken. They claim to be Christians. They spend time with Christians. They may even attend church. Whatever. They are seeming saints, as Matthew Henry says, but real devils, because they are mistaken. Mark my words, if you have not been changed in the innermost being, you are not a Christian. If you have not come to trust in Jesus entirely for salvation from your sin... Letting go of this pretense that you're a good person and that you might sort of tilt the odds in your favor by the good things that you do and predispose God to like you by the good things that you do. If you have not abandoned that way of thinking and trusted wholly and completely on Jesus, you are not a Christian. If you claim to have accepted Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord, 
you are not a Christian. And that has nothing to do with the freeness of grace. That's simply recognizing that, that Jesus is an indivisible person. You can't get part of Jesus. So if my friend is an auto mechanic, and I say, I, I, have, I, I take Jim as a friend, but not Jim as an auto mechanic, that makes no sense. Because Jim is at once my friend and an auto mechanic. And Jesus is at once the Savior and the Lord. And so you either have Jesus or you don't. If you have a friend with black hair, you can't take your friend but not his black hair. That makes no sense. You take the qualities of the person that you take or you don't take the person at all. So you may be mistaken because you have misunderstood what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who has been changed by God, given the new birth, made different than they were. Your inclinations have been changed largely, definitively away from sin and toward Christ Jesus. We still struggle with remaining corruption, but there's been a really profound and fundamental change. Such a drastic change that the scripture can say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. A Christian is somebody who has repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We could cite numerous examples. Uh, let's, help, let's just cite Jesus in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the gospel. There I could easily rest my case without citing many more abundant references. You need to believe and you need to repent. Not that your repentance earns you anything, but it's just part and parcel of you receive Jesus as the Savior and as the Lord. You don't get to get salvation and keep your sin too. That's not how it works. Jesus says stop going that way and start coming this way. And you can't move in two directions at the same time, toward your sin and toward Jesus. You may be mistaken in thinking that you are a Christian for whatever reason and not be a Christian. Because profession does not equal possession. Then, there is the problem of looking at part of the picture. This is also another way in which people may be mistaken. They look only at externals and not internals. And there are things that the scripture speaks of that Christians will do and should do externally. For example, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, Christians should attend church. Right? And so they're operating with a biblical definition of what Christians do, but it's kind of a partial definition. Because they're only operating with the external definitions. Being a Christian is more than just mere externals though. I've, I've said before, being in a garage doesn't make you a car. Neither does being in a church make you a Christian. So you may 
be doing some or many of the external things right. And you conclude, I'm a Christian because I got the externals in order. I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, maybe even I share my faith, right? We read earlier, or you heard earlier from uh, Rick Phillips' commentary that Judas even preached the gospel, Matthew 10, 4, when he himself did not even believe it. Maybe you even share your faith. You've got the external things going. But Christianity is not a matter of mere externals. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. God is not after those who go through the formalities. God is not after those who get the externals right. That's not all that He expects from us. That's not what a Christian is. You can't reduce biblical Christianity to just merely getting the externals right. That's not how it works. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. A true Jew, a true Israelite, is one who has been circumcised not outwardly in the foreskin, but in the heart, by the Spirit. Many that are seeming saints are real devils. It was so among Jesus' closest friends. It's so even today. It ought not to surprise us Though it does sadden us, it ought not to surprise us when we find from time to time that someone who seemed to be a saint was really a devil, so to speak. What do we do with this reality? This has application to church membership. Many churches don't practice church membership in today's day and age. You just attend when you want to, leave when you want to. You have to be a member to shop at Pricemart, but you don't have to be a member to shop at Massey, for example. And many churches operate like Massey or wherever else. I'm not picking on Massey. You just come when you want to come, take what you like, Leave what you don't like. If it suits you, come back. If it doesn't suit you, well, okay. There's no accountability. There's no level of commitment. 
You never get a phone from, from the manager, store manager of Massey. We haven't seen you shopping here lately. You know, everything all right, what's going on? Do you have enough to eat at home? That doesn't happen. Because that's not the nature of, it's just non-committal. Come when you feel like, come and go when you feel like. A lot of churches just operate this way. Maybe, maybe you do get a phone call from time to time. If another church uh, attendee notices that you're not there or the pastor or whatever. Um, but a lot of times not. A lot of times there's not follow-up. A lot of times the assumption is people should be free to do whatever they want. Individualism has infected the church on this point. I think ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church, is, I, I think in my anecdotal experience, pastoring now for seven years in Reformed-ish churches, I think ecclesiology is probably the most controversial point in terms of new people coming in and difficulties that they have with the church. Because this idea of commitment, expectation, accountability, scrutiny, these sorts of things are not welcome in many people's lives, in many people's understanding of the way that Christianity ought to be. But as we say very often, even when we take the Lord's table, Obviously, only God knows infallibly those who are His. But the locus of authority on earth for determining under God, as best as we can, who's a Christian and who's not, is not the individual, but the church. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul can command the Corinthian church to put this, the unrepentant sinning member out. Paul doesn't say, I do it with apostolic authority. He's out. Paul doesn't also say, ask him to resign his membership. As if they have no authority, but could beseech him to do so. Paul says, when you're gathered, you put him out of the church. Never mind if he professes to be a Christian. Never mind if he calls you bigots or calls you judgmental or whatever. Put him out. You evaluate his profession of faith and put him out of the church. The local church has the authority from God as best as, uh, which we are to exercise as best as we're able to determine who is a genuine believer and who is not. And so there ought to be examination prior to receiving a new member into a church. We ought not to just assume that everyone who professes to possess Christianity actually does. We ought not to assume that everyone who professes to be saved from their sin actually is. Everyone who professes to have a new nature actually does. And so on and so forth. Again, coming back to the analogy I drew earlier. If you had a 16-year-old daughter talking to a boy online... And he's telling her all these wonderful things about himself. Would you say, oh, this is great. You should go meet him. You understand? Because 
professing does not equal possessing. And misrepresentation may occur for a number of reasons. Either people lying, or people being mistaken, or people being mixed up, or people being confused, or whatever. It's the same on this point, as I mentioned earlier in the service. It's the same on this point as it is in any other area of life. And we would apply that principle readily, quickly, naturally, in any other area. It seems self-evident. Professing to possess something does not equal possessing it. But in this area, there's pushback. Why? All we're just saying is, if you are a Christian, we're not trying to be cynical or skeptical. We just want to see evidence of genuine Christianity here. That's all we're really asking. So there ought to be examination prior to receiving someone into church membership. And then there ought to be accountability throughout. Some people don't manifest unbelief and unregeneracy right away, immediately. We talked about the parable of the seeds last week. You realize three out of those four seeds spring up. But not all last and bear fruit. And so in the beginning, very often true faith and false faith may look the same. I think this would be pressing the parable too far, exegetically speaking. But if anything, the parable would lean actually towards us thinking that two-thirds of the time it will be the case. Because one of the seeds doesn't spring up, three do, but only one of those three is lasting. So if anything, that parable leans towards saying, we should not expect that everyone who receives the gospel immediately with joy is going to go on. There should be an appropriate amount of caution. Now let me make a caveat here. I'm going to share with you two quotes that both involve the phrase, the best of men. The first is, the best of men are men at best. So we're not looking for sinless perfection when we examine someone as a candidate for church membership. As First John tells us, if we say that we're without sin, we're liars. The truth is not this. We don't know God. Right? We, make, we even make God a liar because God told us we're sinners. So if we're like, no, we're not, then we make God a liar. The best of men are men at best. We know that when we receive people into membership, we're receiving sinners. We know that. And yet, nevertheless, we do examine and look for a pattern of obedience to Christ Jesus. As far as we can tell, we look for sincerity of profession. We look for gospel clarity and understanding, a correct understanding of the gospel. If we were talking with someone in a membership interview and said, share with us what you believe the gospel is. And someone said, well, you know, I think if we try hard enough to be a good person, God will accept us. That would help us understand this person doesn't understand the gospel yet. Because salvation is by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, not of works. Um, So we're looking for evidence of that heart change, evidence that they understand the gospel evidence that they are believing the gospel and pressing on in belief in Christ Jesus. Same thing with the accountability throughout. Christians are going to sin. Listen, we're going to sin against one another. We already have. In fact, I've even sinned, even publicly against other members of this church, and I've had to go back publicly and say, listen, the way I spoke to you was wrong. It was not a godly way to speak to you. 
I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said what I did. Please forgive me. All of us, including myself, are going to sin against one another. If the only way we're all going to remain church members is if we all stop sinning, then, then this church is going to implode. We're going to uh, gradually be gutted from the inside as one by one, all of us sinners are excommunicated by others who just haven't yet seen their sin. So there obviously is going to be sin. And again, we're not looking necessarily, well, not necessarily, we are not looking, period, unequivocally, for sinless perfection. We're just looking for that pressing on. We're looking for that increasing conformity to the character of Christ. I often speak with people in personal conversations one-on-one or with couples in the church or families in the church. I often speak of it like a journey. Right? And, and as long as we're all moving in the right direction, right, we're going to be at different stages in our journey as we go. And the, the new believer who's been a believer for like three weeks might struggle with some things that another brother who's been a Christian for 13 years or 47 years might not. And we've got to understand that. It's not, it's not legitimizing it and saying it's okay, but it's recognizing the reality. And we come alongside one another and we just help one another continue to move in the right direction. But what we see sometimes is that a person makes a U-turn. And we're not just talking about slow progress. We're not just talking about the early stages of the journey. We're talking about somebody moving away from a recognizable pattern of biblical Christianity. Somebody who is so severely, persistently continuing in sin, in spite of conversations, in spite of counsel, in spite of clear biblical exhortations, somebody who is stopping their ears to it, or somebody who is giving merely lip service to those corrections, but nothing changes. That's where we want to start to apply some pressure. And so, there ought to be examination prior and accountability throughout as we consider the concept of church membership in view of this idea that many seeming saints are real devils. We ought to strive for regenerate church membership as best as we're able. This is the pattern that we see uh, throughout the New Testament. This is the ideal that we see that we ought to aim for throughout Let me just read to you from Hebrews in chapter 8, where it talks about the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, 
and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. You catch what this says about the new covenant? Everybody in the new covenant has God's laws in their minds, has them written on their hearts. God is their God. They are His people. And all of them know the Lord. So in the new covenant, we don't have the luxury of saying, well, it's a mixed multitude. At least not in principle. It is in fact, many times. But in principle, it ought not to be so. In the old covenant, it was... Israelites and their children. In the new covenant, it's everyone who knows the Lord. You see the difference? And so in the old covenant, an unbelieving Jewish baby, an unbelieving Jewish toddler, an unbelieving Jewish kid, an unbelieving Jewish teenager, an unbelieving Jewish adult, is still in the covenant. And so they should still rightly be numbered among God's people. But in the New Testament... An unbelieving baby, kid, teenager, adult does not have God's law in their minds, written on their hearts. They do not know the Lord. And therefore they have no legitimate claim to be to being numbered among God's covenant people. And therefore we ought to strive for this regenerate church membership. It helps preserve gospel clarity, both for the person who we refuse membership in the first place, or excommunicate, put out of the church, in that it helps them understand what you possess is not biblical Christianity. What you possess is not salvation. And that's actually a loving thing to do for them. As in the case I mentioned a few moments ago, if someone says to me in a membership interview, if I say, what is the gospel? And they say, well, I think you basically try hard to be a good person and then God will accept you. We would deny that person membership at that time and have gospel conversations with them and say, listen, you've misunderstood what the gospel is. You've misunderstood what Christianity is. And so that person might, though that person might be disappointed not to be eligible for membership at that time, it actually helps them understand that they actually are not a Christian and that they actually need to get right with God via the true biblical gospel. Likewise, when we put somebody out of the church, sometimes it might be because they're, um, uh, they've strayed into a heretical doctrine. We don't all have to agree about every point of doctrine. But for example, if somebody in our church began denying the Trinity or denying the exclusivity of Christ or something like this, we would have some serious conversations. And something like that might lead to them being put out of the church if they're repudiating biblical Christianity, the fundamentals. But many times it's for moral uh, failings and persistent moral failings. Many times it's that a brother or sister is pressing on in sin And brothers or sisters in the church come and try to talk to them. Eventually it becomes known to the pastors. It becomes a church-wide issue. But in spite of it all, they will not let go of whatever it is. right? So whether it's sexual sin or whether it's uh, some kind of financial um, impropriety or fraud or embezzlement or whatever the case may be. 
um, many times is that a person professes faith in Christ and yet they're persevering in their sin. And so we come uh, with passages like whoever uh, claims to know Jesus must walk as Jesus did. Right? If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? Um, no one who has been born of God makes a practice of sinning. So on and so forth. And we have those conversations. right? And we show, listen, we're all sinners. But the Christian thing to do here, now that this clear biblical issue has been brought to your attention, the Christian thing to do here is to turn away from it. You can't continue in this. And if there's that stubbornness, I will not let go of my sin then we might put a person out and say, listen, this, this bears no resemblance to biblical Christianity. We can no longer affirm that you possess what you profess to. And so we do it for gospel clarity for the sake of the person. We also do it for gospel clarity for the sake of our own church, the other members, so that nobody gets confused. Oh, you can deny the exclusivity of Christ and still be a Christian? You can deny the Trinity and still be a Christian? You can live in sexual sin and still be a Christian? Oh, okay. That we're helping preserve gospel clarity among our membership as we practice church discipline. And then finally, for the watching world, don't tell me that you're not watching. Don't tell me that they're not listening. They're not listening. They're not listening when we're speaking the truth and living rightly. They're completely ignoring us. But you make a misstep, or you start to say something aberrant, and they're all over you. In that way, they're like Alexa or Siri. You think they're not listening, but you just say the right word, and all of a sudden they turn on, and they're paying attention. This is the way it works with the outside world, isn't it? Everybody is looking for reasons to reject Christianity. When we practice church discipline, we're putting, we're bringing clarity to what Christianity actually is to the watching world. We're bringing clarity to what we actually believe. We're bringing clarity to how we actually ought to live. And so it's gospel clarity for the person, for the church, and for those outside the church. When we insist on regenerate church membership, when we strive as best as we can to make sure that our membership is populated, not with devils, as Judas was, but saints. And and another reason is that we practice this is for the glory of God. God desires the purity of his church, and if we are to glorify him, we ought to strive for the purity of his church. But secondly, even for the reputation of God with, uh, again, the watching world. When we tolerate amongst us just open sin and rebellion to Christ, people who are just not on the right trajectory, they're not moving forward in their journey, they're going the other way, they're just living haphazardly in flagrant disobedience to Christ. When we tolerate that, what are we saying about God's power to save? And about the quality of the gospel? People outside the church, and I've heard it said many times, sometimes people say it about themselves. 
you know, God doesn't want a person like me. You know, or like someone, I think we were, when we were evangelizing in the neighborhood a number of months ago, I think someone said, you know, like if I walked in the church doors, the church would probably burn down or something, or it'd explode or something. You hear people say things like, oh, you know, God could never get a hold of him. God could never get a hold of her. When we, when we tolerate non-Christians in our midst under the label of Christians and the world sees them living in unchristian ways, it just adds credence to this idea that God's pretty impotent and that the gospel doesn't actually change and that the gospel doesn't actually transform. As opposed to bringing clarity to the fact that when somebody actually meets Christ, as Paul Washer said, it's like getting hit by a Mack truck. You can't just, you can't just come in in a freshly pressed suit with no dirt and stains and tears in it and say, I was hit by a truck on the way to work. Everyone would say, there's no way. Because there would be evidence of it. And so it is with being a Christian. There's always evidence of it. And so when we allow unregenerate church members to populate our ranks, unchecked, unexamined, unaccountable, it's telling people that you can be hit by the Jesus truck, so to speak, and bear no marks from it. Which is not true. So for the glory of God. So those are some applications of this reality that many seeming saints are real devils. we got to reckon with that. We have to reckon with that. And as we think about church membership, we all also ought to be realistic that we're not always going to make the right decision. We're not going to be in, infallible here. And this comes to the next best of men quote, which is the best of men are severe with themselves and charitable towards others. We ought not to be like a bunch of people going around with m- microscopes um, pointed towards ourselves and telescopes pointed towards others, magnifying their sin and minimizing our own. That would be to be severe with others and charitable towards ourselves. If anything, it ought to be the opposite. I've heard that quote attributed to a couple of different people. I don't know who originally said it. But I think it's a good quote. That we ought to be the sort of people that realize that we're sinners. So we're not going around with a haughty disposition. And just looking down our nose at everyone. Is he good enough to be in our church membership? Is she good enough to be in our church membership? Listen. Like Jesus said, he was without sin, throw the first stone. There ought to be a humility that characterizes us as a bunch of sinners who have banded together as we think about bringing other people into church membership. Sometimes, sometimes we do need to draw a clear line and it's very obvious this person should not be a church member. Other times it's very clear this person should. Sometimes, to be honest, you're not 100%. But what, are, but what are you going to do? Like, the person professes to be a Christian. The person does have most of the externals on the right trajectory. They understand the gospel, at least intellectually. There's some evidence of change. It's not an open and shut case. You know, you can't see someone's heart. I can't see someone's heart. Generally in a situation like that, unless there's compelling counter-evidence, 
probably the fairest thing to do is take someone at face value. Sometimes what happens in those cases, sometimes what happens even in cases where we're sure someone's been soundly converted, is that with time we realize we made the wrong decision. We didn't see that person's heart, but that person's heart has not been changed by God. Sometimes that happens. So we just need to make... We need to have a realistic outlook, even as we strive for regenerate church membership. We need to have a realistic assessment of the potential for success in these aims. If there were unregenerate people, even in Jesus' own band, it should not shock us, as I said earlier, even though it does sadden us to find unregenerate people among us. So those are some applications toward church membership. Obviously, and I'm going to close with this, obviously we need to make personal application to ourselves as well. Many who are seeming saints are real devils. And I've just outlined for you that the church can't make an infallible judgment. We're going to do our best. The church can help provide some objectivity for the genuine believer struggling with assurance. Yes, brother, sister, we believe that you're a Christian. Here's some evidences we see. So when you're despairing, take heart. We, you know, we see the evidence of the grace of God in you. The church can help provide some objectivity for the self-assured person who really probably ought not to be so confident. Look, we're really concerned about the state of your soul. Everything is not okay. We're not 100% sure that you're a Christian. We're really concerned about you for X, Y, Z. The church can help provide some objectivity, can be like a mirror to us, help us catch our blind spots and so on and so forth. But the church cannot make an infallible judgment. So don't rest on the idea, even that you're a church member in a solid church that practices regenerate church membership. And exercises church discipline. Matthew Henry pointed out that when Jesus repeated this concept at the Last Supper, one of you is going to betray me. Then everybody asked, Is it I? Is it I? But here, nobody nobody even asked. The storyline just moves on. They probably just... It went in one ear and out the other, maybe. I suppose perhaps there was that level of introspection, but it's not recorded for us. That would just be speculation. For 12 of them to stand there and hear Jesus say, One of you is a devil. Ought they not to have asked, Is it I? Is it I? I want to make sure that I'm right with you. You've heard me say a few times today, many who are seeming saints are actual devils. You know it's true. You know it. You've seen people prove to be false professors in your lived experience. You've seen hypocrites in the church. You've seen people who wore the label Christian but were not Christians. You know it. 
You know that that's true. Ought not that reality to make you ask, Is it I? Is it I? The point of this isn't to undermine a well-grounded Christian assurance. Perhaps after examining the scriptures, the gospel, the evidence, thinking again on the sufficiency of the Savior, you conclude, no, it's not I. I belong to the Lord. I know, as the Apostle wrote in 1 John 5.13, that I do have eternal life. Great. I don't wish to pull the rug from under you in that situation. But there are a lot of false professors. And so many would do well to consider, is it I? And consider carefully and look through a biblical lens at their profession of faith. Through a biblical lens at their understanding of the gospel. Through a biblical lens at their lifestyle. And is it commensurate with what the scripture expects of a Christian? We ought to ask ourselves as we conclude our studies in John 6 today. Have I eaten and drunk of Christ Jesus? We know that that means believe. Whoever believes has eternal life. I think Jesus employs the metaphor at least part to show us that external relating to him is not enough. We've got to take him inwardly, as it were. You can't just get the externals right. You've got to take hold of Jesus in the innermost person. Just like the food goes into you, you need Jesus into you, so to speak. I think that's probably one reason he used that metaphor. Jesus, as we know and as we celebrate this time of year, was born in Bethlehem, a little baby. Grew up, lived sinlessly. Died on the cross. After living that sinless life, he didn't deserve it. It wasn't for his own sin. It was for ours. He bore in Himself the penalty that we deserved for our sin. He credited His sinless life from that cradle in Bethlehem to the cross to us. As if we had lived sinlessly. Three days later He rose. We don't serve a dead Jewish carpenter. Three days later He rose. He ascended. He's at the Father's right hand. He will return again to judge the living and the dead and to rule and reign in an eternal kingdom that knows no end. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the biblical gospel. Whoever shifts their confidence away from themselves to Him, to that work, will have eternal life. That's the biblical gospel. But listen, it's not enough that it's fallen on your ears this morning. You need to eat and drink of that gospel. You need to not just have it outside of you. Food on a plate doesn't benefit you. Food in your tummy benefits you. And likewise, Jesus on a plate, the gospel on a plate, does not benefit you. 
you must eat and you must drink. You need to take hold of that gospel. So in view of the reality that there are many false professors, many people who profess to possess salvation but do not possess it, in view of the fact that many are seeming saints but real devils, ask yourself, is it I? Have I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I eaten the bread of life? Give great consideration to that. No question, literally no question is more important for you to answer accurately.